Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father. It's a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Tune in today. And listen to the full first season, seven episodes in total. You're going to hear intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people talking about their dads, the first guy they ever knew. Or maybe they didn't know him. Or maybe they wish they didn't know him. You know what I'm talking about. The show is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all of whom are writers, all of whom have their own father stories to tell. Tell me about your father unpacks all facets of the father the loving the ambivalent the supportive the fiscally irresponsible the obscenely wealthy the dead the living the fathers who have built us up and the dads who have let us down the premiere season of tell me about your father seven episodes they're waiting for you on apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher you can also find all of the episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com and additional content can be found on instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather also, don't forget, there's an anonymous hotline, 1-888-318-DADS, 1-888-318-DADS. You can call it, you can leave a message, you can tell a story about your father, and maybe they'll share it on Instagram, or leave your name and number, and maybe they'll ask you about your father. Tell me about your father. It's a new podcast. Go get it. Season one, available right now, all right? Okay. How's it going, everybody? What's happening out there? This is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're feeling all right. I hope you're hanging in there. Has everything started back up again? Is that what's happening? I feel concerned about this. I see pictures of uh, pool parties and people congregating. I just feel like it's going to go bad. That's what I feel like. I feel like we're being stupid, and yet I think it's human nature. I'm kind of resigned to it. I just want to stay home. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what are you going to do? I guess the curve is bending. Is the curve bending? Have we bent the curve, ladies and gentlemen? My guest today is Kristen Miares Young. She has a novel out on Red Hen Press called Subduction, which is generating rave reviews. Subduction by Kristen Miares Young. I'm going to be talking to her momentarily. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of The Good Family Fitzgerald, the new novel by Joseph DePrisco. The Good Family Fitzgerald is a saga of money and ambition, crime in the Catholic Church, a sprawling, passionate story shaped against a background of social discord. The Good Family Fitzgerald depicts the lives of Irish and Italian Americans for whom the church is both an organizing principle and a corrupting force. The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco, available now from Rare Bird Books. Go get it. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, part of it is privilege. I know I have the luxury of being a little bit cautious that some people don't have, but I'm just kind of slow. I want to kind of watch and see what happens before I get back out there and start, uh, you know, mall walking or whatever I do. I don't do that, but you know what I mean? Being around people. Not that I'm often around people. Just feels goofy. People are crazy. In case you haven't noticed. Kristen Miares Young is my guest. I spoke with her, uh, you know, over the transom. She was in Seattle, I believe. And I was here in the home studio. And it was just a, a really nice time meeting her and talking with her. She is an exceptionally eloquent and uh, intelligent person. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kristen Miades Young, and her new novel, once again, available now from Red Hen Press, is called Subduction. When I first came to Seattle, I was a beat reporter for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, which was a metro daily that printed from 1863 to 2009. And I was on just constant deadlines, the kinds of deadlines that give you cancer eventually. I mean, just the stress of it was was immense Um, and really working very hard to fight against corporate malfeasance and uh, municipal government um, fraud and all kinds of uh, subjects, which kind of kept me, you know, really tied close to um, to my work. And on the weekends, um, I would travel around uh, looking for um, fresh air just to, to brighten my spirit uh, and try to um, refresh myself after the week of kind of going against these power structures. And of course, being very young and you know Latina and in a world um, of corporate reporting and then the port, uh, the waterfront reporting, which was tra- you know traditionally white and male and older. And so uh, I would take these long road trips by myself. And I would uh, just, I had a Honda Element at the time, uh, which you could put the seats up uh, in the back and sleep in the back, which made me feel a lot safer uh, not having plans, right? Um, I could sleep on a roadside if I wanted to, but I'd have the shell of the car around me. And so I would just set set out into Washington State um, in all directions. And at one point, I went to the Olympic Peninsula and I went the southern route. So I went and I visited uh, quite a few other uh, rural towns, one of them much bigger, Aberdeen, um, looking at as well as stopping in uh, the Quilly Reservation. And so pretty late on a, a weekend day, I came up to the Macaw Reservation and I decided to tool around a little bit. It's pretty large uh, territory on the northwest tip of the lower 48. 
And uh, but before I left, I stopped in at the Macaw Cultural and Research Center, um, and I wanted to talk to them about their way of being um, on this land, uh, which they had inhabited for thousands of years, and that contrast between my own kind of free roaming, migratory uh, self and family who had been in diaspora for generations, you know, one successive generation after another, it seemed very um, shocking almost to me to imagine having a family line that had regarded the same land for thousands of years. And when I was driving around their territory, it's so beautiful. They're uh, right up against the Strait of Juan de Fuca on one side, and then on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, and a number of rolling, craggy uh, hills and peaks uh, amidst that. And, you know, the kind of topography where uh, you get those kind of waves that when they crash up against the, the shore, they send spray to the sky. And there are puffins, you know, and, uh, you know, seals and sea lions and sea otters and whales and just all kinds of sea life uh, that are um, kind of teeming in the water around this place. So I stopped in at this Macaw Cultural and Research Center, which is a a native-run nonprofit that is both a museum that uh, offers uh, public access to their collection of artifacts that were um, disinterred from a saltwater beach uh, in the 1970s uh, and present, you know, in accumulation, one of the largest uh, native uh, findings um, of these particular kinds of technologies, which were uh, net, you know, wood-based technologies. And they were, uh, basically, there were a bunch of longhouses that were at the beach at Ozette, and they were covered by a landslide. And because these baskets and harpoons and even like a, a this is more ornamental, but there was a, uh, a whale saddle that was decorated with hundreds of sea otter teeth. Wait a minute, wait a um, minute, a whale saddle? Right. Like you put a saddle on a whale? Right, but I don't um, believe that it was ever seen in that kind of use. It was, um, it was uh, part of their uh, ceremonial um, gatherings. Okay. I was like, these people are badass. They're riding whales yeah. out there. <laughs> well, they are because they would hunt those whales from canoes. And they would tow the whales uh, back to shore also with their canoes. And so the uh, strength and uh, collaboration that that required was immense. And, you know, even though, uh, in the canoe, uh, was, you know, were men, the wives of the whalers played a very important role, uh, in the thinking of those families and, uh, and their culture to, um, with their behavior on land, assure the success of the hunt. Um, so you showed but, up, I mean, cause I, I've been having conversation, I've been having conversations recently I feel like it's, it's been in the air somehow, but talking to people who had itinerant childhoods or who, as you, as you have been, or your family has been as, you know, in, in diaspora, uh, I moved around as a kid. I kind of, uh, have this like longing to have a place, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to be rooted. So you were, you were feeling that you were also dealing with work stress and this, these two things were what drove you to just kind of sort of randomly wind up at the Macaw Reservation. That was it. Yeah, uh, and it's beauty. It's immense beauty, which is uh, famed 
the Shai Shai Beach is uh, often listed as one of the top 10 most beautiful beaches in the world um, because of its uh, immense sea stacks that are covered with you know trees and tide pools at their base and, um, you know, rookeries of otters, you know, clustered around them. Um, and, but I talked to this uh, docent, Kirk uh, Walkendorf, uh, who was telling me about the ways in which he has been compelled to prove his uh, native blood over the many decades of his life. And what an insult that was uh, to have to uh, show identification to prove something to people who were not what they are when they first arrived, right? These people, these newcomers come in and um, in order to kind of maintain status or, um, you know, confer benefits uh, require this identification, which is uh, fairly unique within our country. Um, wait, and, wait, what do you mean these newcomers? Like people, uh, like the white like, man? You like every single person who came to this country who's not native. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, who's asking them for ideas? I, I guess is my question. I'm just. Well, there's the federal government, right? Uh, who uh, to uh, provide some of the uh, services, health services through Indian Health Services, um, you know, requires uh, some documentation. There are the uh, different points of sale where uh, natives are exempted from certain kinds of taxes. Uh, there are, I mean, all kinds of moments where. You know, of course, obviously, there's um, being enrolled in a particular tribe and dealing with the administration of that particular tribe, and then that interlocking with the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, which kind of oversees um, a lot of their uh, tribal statuses, uh, which are constantly under siege, uh, particularly uh, under this administration. And they, um, he's telling me, you know, this is this is not something that I should have to do. And uh, and I thought about it, all the many ways I've often had to uh, produce identification, you know, to travel internationally. Um, I have been, you know, of course, stopped and asked for my license when I'm driving. Um, but because um, I'm both Latina and and white, you know, I haven't been hassled on the street or at various points of uh, interaction, social interaction uh, and, and asked to prove my Latinidad, you know, uh, and it the kind of fundamental disparity in that life experience um, intrigued me. And so uh, it was getting late, uh, place was closing up, and I uh, was driving back along the very long, windy, uh, pinwheeling road that goes along the Strait of Juan de Fuca, uh, 112. And I pulled over the car and I wrote um, subduction uh, on a reporter's notebook uh, I still have it, actually. I found it the other day. Um, and I put stars around it. And for whatever reason, you know, that was in, uh, you know, the, the mid-aughts. Um, that moment was enough to catalyze years and years of research before I even began writing to try to re-educate myself about the presence of all of these sovereign nations and their peoples and to understand the ways in which I had been conditioned uh, not to see uh, the issues that uh, they had to confront, uh, and also, uh, not to value, uh, the tremendous value, you know, the tremendous, um, offerings that they had made culturally and legally, uh, to our country. I mean, so many environmental laws are, uh, in protection because of, uh, collaborations between native governments and environmental groups to preserve species and habitat. Uh, and so 
and when I think about the kind of scarcity of resources that they often are dealing with and yet are able to fight and have the the wherewithal and the long-term thinking to fight for benefits which may take generations uh, to accrue um, just impressed me. And I, of course, I had done a lot of reading about conquest. I'd studied South, uh, South American um, politics and societies uh, and undergraduate. And there I had read all kinds of first-person accounts by uh, Native peoples, uh, which were taken as oral, you know, testimonials, what they're called, and and transcribed, and of course they are and translated, so obviously suspect, uh, subject to the prejudices of the interlocutors uh, who were often the conquistadors. Um, and but I felt that I had not been well educated about the history in this country, and I had read Zin, you know, and I had done a, a, a bit, but as the years went by, and I kept on going back to Nia Bay, and you know, began real friendships that continue to this day, bring my family out there you know, camping on my friend's property or staying at their houses and whatnot. Um, I have still been amazed at the layers of ignorance which are built into our American education. Um, I recently went to uh, Illinois. Have you ever heard of the Cahokia Mounds? No. Uh -uh. Oh, my God. So check this out. They're a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's right outside of St. Louis, but it's technically in Illinois. And essentially, they are these packed earth pyramids that are kind of one of the northern outposts of the Mesoamerican uh, pyramid culture, which we often see icons of from South America. Um, they were built with baskets of packed earth. And, you know, the royalty of, you know, that's a term that's, you know, uh, transposed onto this community. But they're, you know, uh, some of their most highest status peoples were buried, uh, man and woman, on a bed of 16,000 pierced beads that were arranged in the shape of fish. I mean, just staggering finds. Uh, and the pyramids are built up to the height of the ridgelines around it. So they were meant to, you know, to match uh, nature, it seems, um, and provide vantage uh, that could have had um, other uses. And at the time, in the 12th century, this place was larger than Paris. So, uh, and the only reason that it, they believe that the reason that this culture uh, was uh, kind of dispersed over time was through climate change. And so the idea of this in the center of our country, uh, pyramid structures uh, with a, a sustaining a city larger than Paris in its day, completely upends the scattered bands notion that most you know American children are taught about native cultures. And I only I came across that when I was in my 30s. Well, I was going right? to say, so why, they, why have I never heard about this? This is crazy. It's not, and, and when you think about it, it's the UNESCO World Heritage Site, okay? But So uh, in order to acquire the property, um, all these farmers who live there don't want to give up their properties, right? So they're still, like, in the middle of this, you know, sacred site that is of, you know, global uh, patrimony. Um, there are these, like, you know, basically double-wides. There are people who refuse to sell. Uh, which, you know, that's individualism in our country, and um, I'm not going to uh, say uh, how those people should be conditioned to feel about the government trying to take their property. Um, but, you know, to get to the final uh, peak, you have to cross the highway. And I had my children with me. Um, so little does the state value this UNESCO World Heritage Site that they have planned for people to cross this highway with no stop sign no crosswalk, no flashing lights, nothing. People are just scurrying across a highway 
with My their God. strollers. I mean, you know what I mean? And that is our country. <laughs> um, it's, I laugh because, um, you know, if you kind of take in the anger uh, too deep, it can be uh, something that um, drains you of the will to act, right? And so um, that's one of the things I've always appreciated about uh, the macaws that I've hung out with is that their uh, understanding of historical forces is very deep, but they're also extremely irreverent and witty. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I just kind of began to uh, open my eyes and look around. And you know, not only do those um, are those cochia uh, mounds, as they're called, there are a number of packed earth animal shapes and forms in the shape of kind of like the Nazca lines, right? But they're covered in brush throughout the United States, and you can only really see them if you look at them from space or using Google Earth. Uh, and you can see outlines of animals, like bears, serpents, that were designed for a vantage that no human at that time could have accessed. I mean, so, that's the scope of thinking. So what you said, the Nazca lines, what was, what was it that you said? Uh, yeah, those are down in Peru. Um, and there are a series of lines that can be seen from space that were created by uh, indigenous uh, cultures. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about what the meaning of them are, but um, they're pretty cool. You can check okay. them out. Well, I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're just not like in Arkansas or something and nobody ever told me. <laughs> well, no, but there are, that's the thing. There's bears and serpents, like just lurking in the brush, you know, and probably someone's got like a, you know, a house on it, you know, uh, they're like, Oh, look at this handy ridge top. Right. <laughs> I'll just build my house here. <laughs> hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So it's a little bit delicate though. And I, I'm interested, I, I'm interested in like this epiphany that you had on the side of the road where you wrote down the title of your novel all these years before its publication and, you know, drew stars around it. Like that's a pretty cool story. Um, and it's, it's interesting how that happens, you know, how you have this experience and suddenly it comes to you, but there was a lot of work that went into it beyond that, obviously. And you had to sort of feel your way. Uh, you obviously have your, you know, your reporting experience at, uh, the post intelligencer. Is that, that's right. Right. The Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were working mm -hmm. for the paper in Seattle. So you were out on your beat and doing reporting work. So you clearly had some insight into how to get it done, but the kind of work that you were doing at the Macaw reservation where you're trying to learn about these people and ingratiate yourself and do research for your novel. That's not necessarily simple work. Uh, to, to, to do it well requires some 
insight. Can you talk about the learning curve that you had to um, go through as you went through that process? Well, one of the things, the work is incredibly fraught. And I'm very grateful to the Macaw tribal members who gave their hours to the fraught work that we did together and who uh, welcomed my friendship uh, despite the long history of intrusion and transgression uh, leading to exploitation uh, from outsiders to this community. Um, I think that part of the reason that I have created uh, relationships that have been lasting, welcoming people to my home, uh, them welcoming my family to their homes, uh, is because it took years. Um, the uh, Just going and hanging out, making time in a way that I think is uh, countercultural to urban society to just, you know, show up um, or, you know, arrange to go to someone's house and spend hours and hours just talking, you know, drinking coffee and hanging out. Um, and in that time, you know, what was important to me and this is something that you do as a journalist, you know, when you ask someone to spell their names, you're giving them an oblique reminder that uh, this conversation is on the record, right? That's a way of, telling, of, of reminding them always that what we're doing here is creating a, a record. Uh, and I did my very best throughout uh, the years that I have, uh, when I began showing up on Macaw territory and throughout the years I've continued going back to uh, be open about what I was doing, which is writing a novel, uh, to talk to people about it if they wanted to talk about it, and uh, and to be honest about uh, the depths of my ignorance, you know, which I, as I've said, uh, coming to, you know, uh, uh, the Cahokia Mounds in my mid-30s and realizing how little I knew. Um, I, I describe the disorientation and reorientation required to grapple with uh, the primacy of indigeneity in this country with looking up at the night sky and, you know, people often look up at the night sky and they think that they're looking up, right? But you're actually looking down as well. And that reorientation, the perturbance that is required um, to affect that reorientation is, uh, is bone deep. And because of that, um, I think that I was, uh, did my best to be very sensitive uh, about what people had asked for and about uh, in the past and to, uh, just put that all out on the table. And, um, and it didn't mean that, I mean, not every person that I met, you know, wanted to talk about it or appreciated what I was doing. Uh, and yet, uh, the people that I have, uh, continued relationships with throughout, uh, various families, um, there have been encouraging, you know, um, saying that they wish they could take my classes, which I typically have not taught online in the past, but, so I've been teaching more in the Seattle, you know, urban areas, um, but also kind of meeting up with people one on one, you know, in Seattle and uh, helping people. You know, I, I did a lot of uh, volunteer work uh, to be of service. And I think that's important as well, that it's not just, you know, coming and asking people about their lives, but also contributing something to those lives. Uh, so, you know, I wrote a bunch of newsletters for the uh, Cultural and Research Center and uh, wrote an obit, actually, of uh, Doc Doherty, who's an incredible uh, archaeologist who worked with the Macaw to catalog and uh, and curate their uh, artifacts uh, that you know are in uh, Macaw possession at the Cultural and Research Center, and um, helped my friend you know edit a book on basketry um, 
I was so, it was so sweet. Like she, she's an elder um, and she's wonderful. She was actually the Smithsonian hired her to go take a look at their macaw basket collection uh, in DC. Uh, she's a, a real expert and a maker. Uh, and so she wrote a book to codify her, inf- her information for generations that she may not be able to, uh, to meet and extend it to orally. Um, and I helped her edit that, you know, and that takes years, you know, that kind of stuff. That has to have a lot of illustration in it, right? Yes. Um, she has a uh, photography. Oh, okay. Okay. I was like trying to think of like, how do you learn basketry from a book? You'd have to be looking at something that that's, uh, that's cool. And, um, you know, when you were dealing with people who didn't necessarily want to work with you, like those exchanges, I guess you sort of intuit that. You didn't have any real hard pushback from people, it doesn't sound like. Not that I know of, but it's also very possible that they, um, you know, waited to disclose their opinion at a later time. Um, but it's just like when you're asking people, not just like, but it is akin to when you're approaching uh, a community as a reporter, as a journalist, and asking them to participate in the story. Uh, I equally understand those who, who choose not to, as I do those who choose uh, to engage. And as long as um, I feel that the exchange is uh, respectful uh, on my part, uh, then there is no hard feelings. And then when you talk about that moment you had on the side of the road after first visiting the reservation all those years ago, when you wrote the word subduction in your reporter's notebook, did you know it was a novel? It was a novel. It came to you like that, or is it something that you moved toward after that? Uh, It was a novel. Um, I have always turned to novels for um, learning and solace. Uh, And I was actually um, studying your uh, interview with uh, Otessa Moshveg, and I I think she's amazing. Um, And I was... Uh, thinking about what she said about the privacy of our emotions and the sharing uh, that is possible in that darkness uh, that we do not disclose. And so for me as a reporter, I'd always really studied the difference between studied then, you know, and then really exposed the difference between what people said and what they did. And that was one of my ways of holding people accountable uh, to their words uh, since rhetoric is so, so much a part of um, policy performance rather than implementation. And, but as a novelist, I am much more concerned with the difference between what people say and what they think and understanding, uh, that vast territory, uh, is the architecture of the unsaid that I think is the true underpinnings of subduction as a novel. So it had to be a novel because it had to allow for interiority. Now at the time I hadn't read Catherine Boo, and I still, and she's a master, of course, uh, of her craft. And so there may be a time when I feel confident enough in my engagement with an individual to feel like I can depict their interior world with some kind of uh, lyric authority. Uh, but it asks a lot of other different, harder questions and um, to do it in that way. And and also, just for me as a as a writer at the time, especially, I do read a lot a lot of essays now. Um, but at the time, and especially throughout my childhood, I mean, I just read novels. They're the things that I reach for um, when I feel that uh, deep sense of urgency or craving um, to connect with myself as well as with the mind of another person who is the writer. Mm. And so, yeah, you talk about that that. Um 
push towards interiority and that's definitely at play in your book and you're inhabiting the in you know the inner world of not just one character but multiple characters and that's not i mean i don't know you're giving yourself a you're giving yourself extra work can you talk about like the the creative process that you went through to get that right i have to imagine there was a i mean there's always a lot of trial and error but when you're trying to create two very differentiated voices and create two very authentic human characters um, who come equipped with all of their desires and motivations and foibles and emotional landscapes. Like what was that process like for you? Um, I, I, I don't know that I would recommend this to other people, but I, I kind of method felt what they were doing, you know? Um, so I would, I would go, when I was writing these scenes, I would feel everything that they were feeling. I didn't have distance. Uh, it would engender in my body a response, you know, the ache, the distillation of that ache that is something that Peter and Claudia do share. Uh, Peter, of course, being the uh, underwater welder who's come home from uh, a life of itinerant work, uh, skilled, highly skilled, but itinerant work to take care of his mother, Maggie, uh, who has dementia and has become a hoarder in his absence. And then Claudia, who is the Latin anthropologist uh, who travels out to Nia Bay in the wake of a devastating divorce uh, to conduct field research that she hopes will secure tenure that she needs, uh, particularly now in the wake of um, her marital separation, which, you know, of course, she's comes in uh, like a hot mess, right? She just brings so much damage with her that she is unresolved uh, because of the betrayal that uh, led to her divorce through the uh, affair between her sister and her husband. So you have both of the, these people who are coming into a pretty fraught situation. And um, it was important to me that in a novel that explores the ramifications of contact uh, within a kind of polyphonic multicultural world, which is the United States of today and the sovereign nations that it, um, you know, within that uh, mass of land, um, that there be characters who could speak to uh, both sides of that equation. And so it would have been a lot safer, it seems, uh, for me to have uh, written, or it would have been maybe portrayed as safer uh, for me to write only from the Latina perspective, uh, because that was within the, you know, kind of um, compass circle of my own ethnicity. Uh, But to have a book where you know, the uh, Native characters did not have interiority or, uh, you know, voice uh, would feel to me like having a film uh, set on a reservation that doesn't cast uh, any Natives in speaking roles. You know, it just seemed wrong. Uh, And the ways in which they misperceive each other and lie to each other and then maybe, you know, uh, understand things about each other that they don't understand about themselves is only possible when you are offered access to, you know, distinct minds. And so in these intersecting chapters between Peter and Claudia, um, one of the things I was always tracking was the lies that they told themselves so that they didn't have to change. And then the lies they told to other people to try to get them to do what they wanted. And that, um, as I said, like that kind of architecture of the unsaid, right, became the thing that I was examining. And that's only possible through, I think, a uh, pretty close third person, which uh, subduction stays in. And that's one of the things that helped me uh, develop voice is that, yes, the uh, perspective in the third person does widen to include 
things that that person knows, but it's not necessarily narrated in their first person interior monologue. But um, if, for example, coming from uh, the character of Peter, he would think, you know, maybe, uh, you know, true self-knowledge is elusive, uh, then, you know, I would look at that line and uh, boil it down a bit to, you know, true self-knowledge likes to play hard to get. And the quality of the idea is exactly the same, right? Um, but it's the framework of uh, internal dialogue that that character uh, avails himself of. And similarly with Claudia, uh, because she is an academic and uh, is so oriented towards documentation, um, she invokes her cultural knowledge and ignorance through uh, more of a, a framework of academic uh, speech. Was Peter the harder character to do? I feel like that would be my natural, like thinking would be like, boy, that would be the bigger leap. It would, I would feel a sense of pressure. I think if I were working in the opposite direction, if I were writing a woman, um, I just think, you know, a guy writing a female character tends to be a bigger challenge and vice versa. And then writing Peter as a, an indigenous person, um, did you feel a greater sense of pressure to get it right or concern that you might misstep? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I think that people do when having, when fearful of, uh, you know, um, portrayals across cultural boundaries uh, is that they uh, attempt to make of those characters uh, saints and in so doing deprive them of the rigors of their humanity. And so to me, what was important about both Peter and Claudia is that uh, they both are damaged and yet there's a seeking in them that's very sweet in some ways, even though um, at times they're unreliable and unsympathetic and they transgress. Um, I also just really liked Peter. You know, there's something about his character that's somewhat endearing, although he's kind of like a grown man child also because he, you know, he comes home to take care of his mom. Right. But then she's like patching up his jeans, you know, like he's a teenager, you know, and he's taking care of his mom. He's come home to like, you know, clear out a trailer of all this stuff. And yet, you know, she's making the meals, right? Um, and so there's this way that when people kind of come back into patterns of being, even after decades of separation, that can feel, you know, very familiar. Um, and his, um, his misogyny as well is something that is so uh, typical um, of our, um, the mainstream society into which he has been pressured to assimilate. And, um, and it's something that, you know, internalized misogyny is not just uh, something that is a problem with men. It's also a problem with women. And that self-critical eye uh, that a woman has towards her own appearance, actually, when when parroted through the mouth or mind of a man, um, is revealed for what it is, uh, which is oppression. And I think that can be harder to see when it's just an internal um, monologue. And so with those characters, they by allowing them to show me what they were going to do rather than trying to fit them into a plot line. Um, I was able to allow the characters to develop and then shape the, the structure of the book in a way that um, made its pivots feel uh, more surprising, but also inevitable in some ways. Something happens and you're like, oh, of course, you know, but it also um, can be um, something unforeseen at the same time. And that combination of, uh, surprise and inevitability um, is when something clicks into place and feels right for me as a writer. Yeah, I've often said that about the end of a book. I mean, it, I guess it could apply to any part of a book, but 
trying to get the ending right, you know, surprising but inevitable feels like as good a criteria as I've ever heard. Thank you. Uh, so I want to ask too, did you get any of your macaw friends to read the book and do, uh, like give you feedback and help you with like quality control? Uh, did you ha did you go through that process or did you get to a place where you felt like you could trust your own instincts? So I think it's important when you share a book, uh, for uh, a read, you know, these are now called what sensitivity reads, um, that you are clear about what you're asking for and also cognizant of who you're asking it from. Um, I was very lucky that uh, through some of the years that I've spent out there, um, I've developed relationships with people who uh, are readers, are you know, incredible historians of their own culture and other cultures, and, um, and are just incredibly uh, savvy. Um, you know, you know, globe-trotting people. I mean, really, the macaw, they live out, you know, in Nia Bay, but they, even just for a basketball tourney, they'll cross the state, you know, and a lot of the people who work with the Cultural and Research Center, I mean, they, um, they travel around the world, you know, and they are incredibly engaged uh, with international, indigenous, and uh, curatorial uh, communities. And so uh, I sent the book in draft form, uh, to the board president of the Macaw uh, Cultural and Research Center. And um, I was, um, you know, we, we obviously we text each other and whatnot uh, sometimes, but a lot of times it's on Facebook via Facebook Messenger. And I was grateful that she said that she was you know, enjoying the read um, and that, you know, later she said that she would love to take one of my classes, you know. Um, just yesterday, actually, uh, the ED of that uh, center sent me, you know, an email saying like, oh, there's these, you know, arts funding out there, you know, you might want to apply it. I'm like, Oh, thank you. Thank you for considering that what I do brings value enough to be worth funding. You know, um, even though it wasn't her organization who'd be providing it, just the thought that she thought of me, um, made me feel good. And so, um, I did share, uh, the book, um, many people who are macaw, um, who I respect and, and some of whom I love, um, are still in the process of reading it now. Um, and I'm looking forward to having some of those conversations. I was supposed to go out for a book club um, actually right around now um, that I was setting up with some local educators to be hosted at the high school uh, and to be present for the conversations that may be happening in community and between friends and colleagues uh, about the subject of the book and the way that I handled it. Um, so I'm still hoping to do that. Uh, it may have to wait. Uh, the Macaw uh, Nation has closed their territory, rightfully so, uh, through at least mid-May, and I expect that will extend uh, farther. Um, and then the other thing that I've done is, which is important to me, uh, because the book doesn't just invoke uh, the Macaw Nation, although, of course, that's where it is based, but also uh, various cultures of the Olympic Peninsula. And so I worked with the North Olympic Coast Library System to create a series of book club sets that would be available to community members and have plans, hopefully they'll go through uh, because of the pandemic, um, to go to a number of these very small uh, rural libraries uh, who are run by, you know, incredibly dedicated staff uh, to be present for uh, book talks and book club discussions and to hear what they have to say and, and to explain, you know, or answer questions um, and just engage in person. Um, so that's kind of some of the structure of the work that I've done over time to understand uh, how it is that the book might be received and where are things that I might be airing in. One of the things that I uh, felt was important in subduction is that 
basically the narrative is constantly in a uh, in a meta way the meta narrative is constantly invoking uh the project itself right of writing and producing this book and so i rope it back into their interactions and the documents that she produces and into her explication of what she's doing there and to their reactions to it and so it is the subject of the book the problematic nature of engaging across cultures is the subject of the book and because of that i felt that i was able to show my thinking and show my work of course if and one of the things i always tell my students is that if you try to show everything you know you'll kill the story right so you have to you know research carries a story like water carrying a boat it needs to keep moving uh and so there are certain decisions that you make with um plot points or time frames or you know characters who may not be you know it's it's narrated through peter who you know has been away from the reservation for several decades it could have been narrated through his mother you know who has an entirely different way of thinking and knowing about her culture and it was important to me that uh there be a through peter uh a gradual and community um supported uh accumulation of knowledge you know this filling of his mind and heart that happens intentionally brokered by his family and neighbors to bring to welcome him back and because of that uh i think it helps bring others along as well as to the importance of this um beautiful unpaid work that uh they do for each other um i mean sometimes people get paid you know to run a uh to run a you know um a ceremony i'm not saying that there's not value financial value according to those services people do um pay their mcs and and whatnot in various ways through gifts and and money as well um and they'll actually you know pay people to show up at the potlatches as well though it's more kind of um uh not performative um but it's it's an exchange that is symbolic um because the amount of time that people put into uh, attending these events and preparing for them you know exceeds um what uh you know might be given um but of course there's um, items of immense value that are also given away um that are you know um intergenerational heirlooms uh which is also of course something that uh, the book deals with But you know, one thing that I did do is um through years at the University of Washington where I got my MFA, um I met Alyssa Washuda who is an incredible writer and thinker, uh Calitz um tribal member uh who is uh, the author of a book called White Magic coming out on Tin House in spring of 2021. And um you know, I was very uh you know, clear with her about my project, uh, about my paranoia about the project, about my whatever you know fierce longing that i had to make this book happen you know it would have been very easy for me to write like a coming of age story narrated through a cuban woman right and then just to take that woman through her you know paces through the rest of my uh, literary career but i wanted a deep emotional intellectual and cultural reckoning and for that uh, i needed to extend myself beyond uh, the perspectives that i had known and um I was in conversation with her in the rumpus uh which you can check out um it's an honor to uh to have someone like her as a first reader uh and I'm grateful to her for uh blurbing the book um but you know to the extent that uh the book is going to be joining conversations those are conversations that I'm having now you know and planning to uh host and guide and listen to 
uh, for the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an educational experience that you've put yourself through. And I feel like it's going to be useful to people, not only just on its own terms as a novel, um, but also for the meta experience that it presents along the lines of what we've been talking about. I also feel like like what you've done is something that I think a lot of writers might have the impulse to do, but might shy away from out of fear, because we do see sometimes people getting dinged for trying to kind of write outside the limits of their own perspective or to inhabit a character, in, you know, from a different cultural background. And, you know, like, God forbid they make a mistake and mm -hmm. then suddenly it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes sort of a... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, a big, a big, uh, dust up on social media, or mm -hmm. it can wind up making, I think other writers, uh, maybe more timid than they should be. I think it's, it's a balancing act because you, you do want to do it right and do your due diligence and be respectful. But as a creative person, I think it's, it's admirable and correct to stretch yourself in that direction. If that is what your true impulse is artistically. Yeah. And if you're willing to put a decade in. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's not this is not that's not the kind of book that you're going to peel off in two years. It just isn't the kind of thinking, the reorientation that we were talking about earlier requires a seasoning of years. And that doesn't mean that um, I did not err. Right. It doesn't mean that I won't be pilloried by uh, someone, you know, on the Internet. Um, but for me, the value that that reorientation toward uh, a, a fuller vision of the origins and future of our nation as a collaborative uh, process of making and being uh, between settlers and indigenous peoples uh, is worth it, you know, and the education, you know, quote unquote, that you describe is something that has changed the way that I uh, report, you know, um, it's changed the way that I act as an arts curator uh, and as a, you know, uh, panelist and judge and um, looking at, for example, I spent a year uh, investigating the disappearance of this native actress named Misty Upham, who was Blackfeet and appeared in um, wonderful movies with Julia Roberts and uh, Meryl Streep and went missing in the woods, a shabby patch of woods near her house uh, in Auburn, Washington. And I spent a year on that story, um, getting a bunch of documents, interviewing more than 50 people, uh, talking with community members. Um, that wasn't that didn't happen because I was writing my novel. Uh, but my understanding of the importance of these individual lives and are and the importance of drawing attention to the systemic disregard for these communities and the portrayal of the resilience and uh, endurance of these communities is something that I think is of lasting value, both as uh, an individual and as a you know literary uh, contributor to American Letters. Hmm. And what about you said it, it changed the way you you report? I think you touched on it a little bit, but there like what are some other ways that that uh, that it concretely changed the way you approach your work as a reporter? Well, so one of the things that I think that every reporter should do is uh, put their source list through an equity lens um, and make sure that they are drawing upon all the various communities of thought that have uh, carried forward uh, these, um, you know, inquiries for hundreds of years, right? A lot of times people 
will inter, you know, intersect or interlock with uh, sources who have institutional affiliations that confer on them authority, which is wonderful, but they may, without meaning to, uh, write a story that only quotes white people because those are the people who've been allowed in as gatekeepers to these institutions. Um, I think it's incredibly important to seek out expertise from various communities. And that's something that I did prior to, uh, prior to writing this novel. And I was always very uh, attuned to uh, representations of Latino communities, for example. Um, and, uh, but when reporting on this uh, story for The Guardian, for example, I was really adamant that uh, people's tribal affiliation uh, be included as a parenthetical after their names, which is something that indigenous uh, news sources like Indian Country Today, Indian Country Today do without fail, right? Um, and part of the reason I felt that was important is that they think it's important. It shows uh, their affiliation. It shows who they are, where they come from. And in aggregate, you know, uh, it showed that this urban community of indigenous support came from so many different societies and and came together to create um, a community. And without those parentheticals, which did kind of gum up a sentence, you know, my editor was like, well, it just reads better without it. I'm like, yes, but we're not going to participate in erasure, are we? And we didn't. Right. I, you know, she would take them out and put them back in. We did that a couple of times and I just held the line. Right. And those small moments, those gestures are, I think, incredibly important to creating space for uh, readerly knowledge and institutional uh, forward facing. Right. Uh, so also and, you know, and that can be true for anything. Like I do a story for The Washington Post about cannabis packaging and there's a fairly large problem with uh, the lack of recycling uh, capacity uh, around cannabis packaging. And it's I mean, just so much plastic and you know, uh, all kinds of materials are being put into the waste stream by these new industries that they've stood up without any regard for their environmental sustainability. Um, but one of the things that I have noticed about uh, reporting about the cannabis industry is that it tends to um, exclude uh, black voices um, who are also coming from a community that has historically been punished for trafficking cannabis. You know, so now all, you know, a lot of the recognition and the profits are going to uh, white corporations, you know, or white run corporations uh, around uh, these, the substance. And in the meantime, the community that it, it has uh, sustained um, so much of the uh, castigation from the legal system from it are not getting that play. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just made sure I put my source list through the equity lens. I'm like, okay, well, how many of these com companies that I'm talking to are black run, you know, uh, and that that kind of uh, extra step is something that I think a lot of people feel they're too busy for. They don't think about it, but it's absolutely critical because you get a perspective that is uh, more informed. Many times the perspective of the excluded group has better information about the values of the group that was doing the exclusion right and so that that is lost when people are not uh deliberately uh, making sure that uh the sources that they're reaching out to and citing in the story um are not uh diverse do you teach this stuff i do i teach uh i don't teach journalism as much although i did just give um at denison university i gave a narrative journalism talk 
uh, thanks to my friend Maggie Messett. She's an incredible immersion journalist who, her book, uh, The Rainy Season, was long listed for a prize in South Africa. And she learned like five languages to immerse herself for years in this post-apartheid uh, village in South Africa to tell this narrative journalism story through the perspectives of uh, three characters who are members of that community. So she brought me in for that. And I teach I teach the personal, I write incredibly, <laughs> incredibly personal essays. That was actually one of the harder leaps for me. Actually writing a novel got me into my shit so deep that I had to write personal essays. <laughs> And I've been writing, I've been peeling those off. I've got a whole laptop full of essays that I'm not sure I can publish yet. <laughs> just, just let them, let them rip. I know. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, yeah. Even my next book, I think, is going to be is is a hybrid of um, a another. You know, re, I've been researching it since 2016, um, and set in this uh, pagan uh, mother goddess worshiping cult that was uh, very prevalent throughout Rome. Uh, and um, in you know, right around the time of the Christianity beginning to subsume those pagan rituals uh, for cultural dominance, um, and then with a kind of an interstitial, interlocking, essayistic um, chapters of me with my family, um, my children, and my husband um, tracking down the truths of these pagan sites um, throughout Spain, which is where my diaspora kind of originates from which was called Lusitania and the time of uh, you know that the book is set um and then in the process also revealing uh layers of my own family story so I'm kind of finding ways to bring myself in um that will extend past uh pure fiction um and in that I'm taking some uh inspiration uh from a lot of folks who are writing uh, across genre and not being constrained about what it's going to be called, right? Just making the thing that is calling out to be made and worrying about the rest of it later. Let somebody else decide what to call in, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a book critic, though, too. Oh, oh, okay. I know. <laughs> I only started doing that because I didn't like a lot of the criticism that I read, and I felt like a lot of really good books were being excluded, you know? Um, and as someone who whose own work was almost, you know, excluded, and I'm deeply grateful to Red Hen Press for, uh, you know, putting my book out into the world and uh, supporting it. Um, you know, it's important to me, and I think you do this uh, regularly, I and mean, we've done it hundreds and hundreds of times, to bring people into the canon, right? It's like you're literally extending a hand and bringing someone in um, because the the ways in which our literary societies uh, intersect with each other uh, can create a almost an impermeable wall, you know, and I, even with, you know, I had been on the Pulitzer Prize winning team, I was writing for the Guardian, you know, I, for, I was kept on one side of that wall for a long time, right? But I knew how good the book was. And I, I guess it's hard to say, I just said that out loud <laughs> in public, That's but I it. knew how good it was. I believed in it, you know, I believed in it for years. And people were trying to tell me to make her fresher, make her younger, you know, um, make her less unreliable, make her more nurturing, you know, uh, just do all of this stuff. And like, even on the page, to have these female characters be constrained the way that my own woman's body has been constrained, you know, through, uh, and my intellect, the attempts to corral uh, my intellect over the years um, was infuriating. 
you know, and that's why I felt like so um, grateful that it's been received well, you know, because I had to believe in it alone for years. Right. <laughs> right. You know, like not... you've been working on you've been working on a project for like a decade, right? Yeah. Yes. I was, yeah. I was working so... on working on it just a little bit ago, so it's still going. Oh. You know, and you do you have to stay in your little. Um, you know, your little uh, hovel and work on your book and you're the only person who really gives a shit. Yeah, and, and, then, <laughs> and then especially if it's, I think especially if it's a work of ambition or if it's a work that maybe falls outside the bounds of, uh, you know, popular narrative or the popular culture, it's always going to be a battle unless you've got some precedent, you know, some sort of uh, market precedent that's going to make it easier for publishers to take a risk. But um, it's a battle and it's a, and you know, in a way it's an infuriating to hear that somebody as obviously intelligent and talented as you had to struggle. But I think it's also heartening maybe for some people out there, um, to know that it's a battle for, for us all. Like there's not something necessarily wrong with you or wrong with your book no. just because it's hard. Yeah. I, I honestly, I feel like I, I mentor people. I mentor writers at Hugo house as their prose writer in residence. And for the first time, I was deeply grateful for my own struggle because I could tell people that they weren't alone, that it wasn't them, that it wasn't something they're doing wrong, that literally it takes almost psychotic self-belief to stay in, you know, and, and that it takes, a, you know, a, a, accumulation of hard work over time. That's one of the things I loved about that Moshbag interview. It's like no one gets lucky. You know, when it happens, they've worked hard. And now some people may get the, you know, buoyancy and the lift that others don't receive right, right off the bat. But for most people, when it does begin to happen, it's because they've been putting in the years. And that seasoning emotionally, I think, helps prepare them to be better writers. I mean, I'm, it's made me a better human. The amount of rejection and failure that is it's intrinsic to this process, um, <sighs> it's hard to describe without making it sound like a hellscape. Did, but <laughs> did, let, me, <laughs> let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Did you ever, did you ever think it was it was done, done. Did you ever quit or like have a period where you, you kind of threw in the towel and then you eventually kind of thought it over and went back and tried again? Or did you always, always believe, was it an unbroken process of belief and perseverance? It's hard. You know, I was starting on my, my second book when I, the future of the first one was not assured. Um, also during the time of, of writing in uh, this book, I had uh, two children 18 months apart. Uh, my kids are four and six right now. Um, and so of course that will put its own gaps into your schedule. <laughs> sure. I, I know you have kids so like, you know, <laughs> like it's, you know, you're just, you, you, it's harder to work at night because you're just so tired. You know, I became a morning person, which is insane to me, but I mean, actually, you know what the hours of, um, even, I mean, I only do this when it's like something's bad wrong, you know, but like now if I get up at like three, you know, and I just wake up, I'm like, this is one of the best times to write actually from four to, I get up at five thirty to work out anyways, uh, just to stay sane. My friend who's a foster mom to three kids, she comes over to my house and we work out. Um, but that Wait, is, hours it, from... is it, is it, is it Renee Denfield by any chance or no? No, no. Oh, okay. I've had her, I've had her on the show and I think she's from Seattle and I think she's a foster oh. mom. Yeah. Or maybe she's from oh, Portland. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, it's, but at, the hours from four to five thirty, right. Um, are really wonderful. They're quiet hours. You know, they're not times when you're getting pinged or, um, inter, you know, interacting with other people, but that's the kind of thing of being a parent drives you so deep into your desperation to be the thing that you wanted to be before you die. 
you know, um, that I feel like it helps recommit you to your vision if it was true in the first place. And um, I, there were times when I was being advised to just write the next book and then sell this one after that one, you know, um, and I just couldn't do it. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't allow all those years. I mean, after so many years, I, even when doing investigative projects, it'd take me a year, but take me a year. Right. And then within uh, some period of months after that time is concluded, I would be able to have a public interaction and hopefully see some social change or some policy change or some kind of moment that uh, the story led to a slight uh, but hopefully perceptible pivot within our society. And the promise of that with a novel is much more oblique. And um, I've come to understand, and this is a horrible realization, but it's also beautiful and heartbreaking, uh, that the doing the work itself is the reward. That's it. And once I got clear on that, then everything else came into play. Uh, then I realized that it was my quality of focus was the only thing that I could condition. And I mean, I had time, I had agents being like, you're a genius in a rejection letter. I mean, I, I, I wish I can't believe I said that out loud again. Dang it. I wish I was being a little bit more circumspect right here. Uh, but like I, editors be like, this is the most lyric book that I read this season in a rejection, you know? And, and it made me angry, you know, about what was being excluded and why. Um, and I think the only thing that, that my response rather than embitterment, I, at one point when I thought that I had failed, right. I thought that this wasn't going to happen. And I told one of my best friends, um, she's an incredible woman. She started this nonprofit rising tad capital. She was a Ethiopian refugee, um, who I met at Harvard, um, where she, um, began to incubate this idea to have a community business academy. Anyhow, I was telling her at one time, I was like, Alpha, um, you know, the triumph here is that I have failed, but I am not embittered. And that is countercultural. Uh, failure is like the worst thing that can happen to an American, you know? Um, and so that felt like a deep embodied wisdom that had been the only gain for all of those years. And I'm like, I'm deeply grateful to be on the far side of that and to have kept on believing and um and clambered my way out of that yeah i mean it's it's great to hear and i think there it, it can be a little bit delicate because you don't want to get bogged down you know if you have a belief in a project and it's just not happening you can actually sacrifice other valuable work and forward progress that you might otherwise be making if you weren't so fixated so uh, I, I hear you, I hear yes. you. And like, and like, I'm so thrilled for you that it worked out. And I think, I think it just brings up an interesting question and I don't know if there's necessarily even a clean answer to it, but I struggle this, with this myself. You know, it's like, what's the difference between perseverance, like admirable perseverance and self-belief and picking yourself up off the mat and dusting yourself off and continuing to try and like delusional masochism. <laughs> <laughs> Janice, okay? <laughs> that is the same coin. <laughs> um, I I remonstrated myself consistently for, because I know how effective I can be. Uh, I know how that sounds. I'm just going to say it. 
Um, I, I know how effective I can be, how efficient on deadline. And, you know, to know that, I mean, I could be a, a first class administrator, you know, really delivering direct services to people in a way that improved their lives. And there were times that, I mean, I started a nonprofit uh, investigative journalism studio uh, that's ongoing. I served it as board chair um, the last, after the election and up until the end of last year uh, called Investigate West. Um, and so I kind of, um, I kind of assuaged that uh, recrimination, that self-recrimination uh, through that work that I'm like, well, you know, maybe the, the majority of my hours are not bettering society in a way that I can measure right now, but I'm still doing this other work, you know, and Investigate West's uh, reporting has led to uh, about 15 new laws to help protect the environment and foster care children and uh, the lives of healthcare workers and uh, government transparency advocates. It's real work, right? Um, but I also believe truly that our world needs people who have come alive, like inside of their bodies, in their minds, and that have connected in some way that deep longings that are private in that darkness that Moshbeg was des describing and, um, and, and brought them forth. And, and I knew that I could easily reach the end of a very admirable career um, in a state of personal unhappiness that I would not have wished on any other person. And so kind of recognizing that also my joy might also be the world's um, and that we needed more joy. Um, even if service is service is still a critical element of my daily life. Um, mainly right now, luckily uh, through the structure of Hugo house, uh, which has provided me with um, a place uh, to kind of share what I know. Um, but that coming alive belief in the internal coming alive um it's, I think it's the project of, of literature and I still believe it, you know, what, like 30, 30 odd years after I first started reading, it still saves me. And if that's true for me, then maybe it's true for others. And then maybe, maybe what we're doing here does matter. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that speaks to me very much. And I think that it's kind of part of the, the gambit of any writer who works on a book in isolation for years and years, it's the gambit of this show. It's the gambit of the entire literary community. And I think you have to believe that people like people writ large, uh, even people who might not necessarily be engaged in literature or might not be dedicated readers or readers of anything at all. Uh, I always, and maybe I'm mistaken. I always tell myself like they're hungry for it, even if they don't know it. <laughs> Yes. And I don't know if that's just, uh, you know, my ego talking, but I just, I, I, I know so deeply what a book can do when it really gets its hooks into you. And it doesn't seem like a stretch to me to look around at what's happening in our world and in our culture and to think that people don't need to do more cultivating of their inner lives and to take deeper dives and to um, explore the terrain that you were talking about, the emotional terrain, either as writers or as readers, because... It just seems very obvious to me. There's a deficit, and uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm going to stick to my guns on that one, and and continue to believe that, that that's the case. And I I also have been thinking lately, and I don't know if you've been doing anything similar, but with this pandemic and the period of reflection that it has sort of a, like enforced upon people, 
Um, you know, maybe there is an inward turn happening that could be seen as some kind of silver lining amid all the bad stuff. Has that crossed your mind? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, um, and I will, I'm about to get personal. Um, I, I lost my grandmother, my abuela, right at the start of this pandemic. And she was the matriarch of our family. She is the one who made the decision to leave Cuba and plant us here and made tremendous personal sacrifice to make that happen. Um, my mother was, you know, a teenager at the time. Um, and, but she raised me while my mom was having a big career. So she was basically like my second mom, you know? Um, and concurrently I had my book launch <laughs> and I mean, I was supposed to, uh, appear from like bookstores to like Banner Royal Hall. Um, and I planned like 35 events, um, to have the conversations that we're having, but in person. Um, and also concurrently, uh, my children came home from school and never went back. <laughs> and the reason that I laugh is because these pressures remind me of a time uh, 10 years ago uh, when there was a great wave of newspaper closures. And I had to ask myself whether only cultivating my own skill set was the best way forward. And in response, you know, I want, I'd always wanted to be an investigative reporter, but I started uh, a nonprofit that would create those kinds of positions for other people. And I bring this up because I think that right now there are a lot of people, we're all feeling unmoored. But for those of us uh, within a certain age range and um, and sphere of influence, it is our time to lead and with a vision for what might greet people on the other side of our coming together. And to the extent that we can step into our own authority in difficult times, we can enact the wisdom that we've been seeking through writing and reading. And the loss of the matriarch of my family at the same time that I've become the matriarch, uh, just makes me realize so much how often we are unprepared for the responsibilities of power. Um, and that in order to, to obviate our own responsibility to, to carry forward what we know, we will, um, we will self-deprecate or diminish the range of our influence and authority. And one of the things that I've appreciated about being a you know designated mentor at Hugo House is it's made me step into my own authority. What I see at all ranges of ages, from teenagers to people in their 80s, are people who have not recognized their own expertise, who have not validated their own belief system who are essentially in the same adolescent morass with which we began this life. And I think that literature, product, the production and publication and sharing and conversing and reading of literature can bring people into their own purpose in a way that makes them come alive. And if they come alive and stop frittering away time and instead invested into a vision, whether for themselves or their families or for our society, then we can be made better. And that's, scary because it, it requires something of us that we may not yet have given. And that's what I think that 
that Marion Williamson, you know, quote about hiding your, from your own light, you know, the light illuminates what must be done. <laughs> That's why no one wants to see it. <laughs> There's a lot of work on the other side of those revelations. Um, and so my hope is that I will find the strength and that others will find the strength uh, to hew to this path and, and to bring others along as well, uh, because it can get lonely. Very well said. I don't even know if I have anything I could add to that, but that says essentially what I was getting at um, very beautifully. And before I let you go, you've alluded to it a little bit in talking about your grandmother and my condolences to you. Um, you know, you have a rich family history, it sounds like. I'd love to know a little bit more about, you know, where you come from. You mentioned Spain earlier in the context of the, the new novel that you're working on. Uh, and then it sounds like there was movement to Cuba and then to the States. So could you just talk a little bit about your family history and, and where you come from? And I guess then how you wound up in the Pacific Northwest? Um, yeah, my family uh, ended up in Tampa, Tampa, Florida. Um, and it is, um, it's a city that has changed over time. There's a lot more cultural uh, availability there now than when I was growing up. Um, but, uh, my dad is, um, from a, uh, military line, uh, and that, you know, kind of originated in South Carolina on the one side of my family on his side. Um, I mean, I have a, he has a document that goes back to 1771, the indentured servitude of one of our forebears, uh, in South Carolina. And then on the other side, you know, we have my mom, uh, who, you know, arrived uh, and learned English by watching television for six months. Um, and she went on to be like a speech giver and policy writer. So she, you know, she did learn it. Um, and um, so kind of out of that uh, conflagration, um, my grandparents lived in our home uh, to provide childcare because both my parents had uh, big jobs. Uh, my dad was an attorney and my mom wa worked for the Social Security Administration um, trying to improve services to people in need. And as a result of that, um, I had a lot of time on my own, uh, a lot of time with books. My, uh, my abuelo would take me to the library once a week and I would get like grocery bags full of books and bring them home and read them. And I would read them at school as well, um, which they would allow because I'd become kind of a problem, um, at some point in the classroom. Because, you know, it just was kind of slow and then I would get kind of ornery and then things would go awry. So eventually they let me read in class. Um, and uh, kind of out of this childhood in this intergenerational household, this bilingual intergenerational household like run by exiles, um, I came into the world of literature. Um, but as for my actual day-to-day -day existence, I was um, fairly unhappy in Florida. I felt uh, that I was not a culture that I wanted, um, the overarching, uh, roles for men and women, uh, within that seemed, um, constricting to me. Um, and of course there's a wonderful example throughout histories that are being revealed through historians that are bringing, um, other lenses to the documents that have been created, uh, where you find, you know, the, the pioneering women and, uh, indigenous women and um, who kind of uh, kept their societies together in their times. Um, but I wanted to get out of there pretty bad. Uh, and so <clears throat> the only beauty that I had in Florida actually was in this ranch. And so Florida, so Tampa is like mid is central Florida. But then my grandparents had this ranch up in north central Florida. And that's the deep south. 
I mean, that is Volusia County, Florida is, is real South. Um, and we had horses, uh, or their horses were run on the property and a bunch of longhorn cattle as well that we would herd. Um, so I did a lot of like cattle herding, strangely, uh, in my childhood, a lot of muck and stalls and things like that. Um, did you have any siblings? One sister, uh, older sister, three years older. Um, and, uh, so when I left Florida, my mom moved to California to take a bigger job with the Social Security Administration. And when I arrived in, we and she moved to she moved to Sausalito, California. Have you ever been there? I have. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's one of the it's it's quite precious in both senses of that term. Um, but it when I arrived, I'm like, this is I'm like, what what have we been doing on the East Coast all this time? Right. <laughs> you know, like I was just like not. And I went back to the East Coast for Harvard, you know, because I wanted to go there. Uh, but I was done. You know, I was so done. And I resolved that I would never move back to the East Coast. And I've actually been offered really good jobs, um, but just refuse because um, the expansiveness of possibility uh, within West Coast cultures um, is more interesting to my to me as a being and as a maker. Um so I had been working at the Miami Herald. It was a four-hurricane summer. It was my first job. I went down to the Buenos Aires Herald to report. I went to Time Magazine to report, and then I went to, and then I got a uh, horrible uh, ovarian tumor that um, ended the internship. Which you know I've been doing great, but they have no job, of course. And when they figure out that you're a young person who might have cancer, um, but it, wait, wait, so, wait, wait, it, it turned out okay though, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. I had kids. I had children. Wow. You know, on yeah. on one ovary. <laughs> so yeah, I lost my ovary at the age of twenty three, and then um, at, right after that, went to work uh, to work for the Buenos Aires Herald, and um, after that, uh, went on a kind of like a uh, large trek around Patagonia with the man who became my husband, um, and to whom you know I'm still married happily and have children with, um, and then I came back from Patagonia to the Miami Herald. And there are, I mean, those journalists are amazing. I loved them. I met these badass women. Um, Susanna Neesmith, for example, she was my favorite reporters. She, you could send her into a hurricane. You could send her into revolution. She had this kitten face and this gravelly voice. And, and she was just, she is, she is amazing. Um, and she was a mentor for me at that paper. And it was wonderful. But at the same time, I'm like, I, Miami had none of the glamour that is promised. You know, I was living in South Beach and like in a apartment as run by like slumlords, essentially. And, you know, reporting it out of, you know, communities that have been devastated by decades of bad policy and highway placement and police corruption. I mean, <laughs> at one point, the Miami Herald did a story, I think it was in the 80s, and they found that not only were all the crack houses or majority of the crack houses being run by one single group of people, but those people were the actual police officers. And they found this out through the property records. I mean, like, so it was like serious. It's a a good place to be a journalist, maybe not so wonderful to be a citizen or a resident. Um, and so uh, they didn't offer me a job and I was pissed because I had worked so hard. You know, I just worked like 12, 14 hour days, just piecing days and days and days together uh, to, to see what I could do. Um, but the editor called my editor at the PI and said, um, you don't want the competition to hire her. So I got a job and um and drove across country and basically despite everything despite the closure of that newspaper uh despite the incredible lack of affordability in this city um despite you know the 
ongoing socioeconomic cataclysms of corporate greed and civic divestment, uh, I have resolved to stay here. And that's how I came to be in Seattle. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a <laughs> long story. No, but I mean, there's a lot in it. I feel like we could keep, ta- I feel like I could keep talking to you because I feel like there's, it's such a, you know, it's rich terrain, like what's happened to journalism, what's happened to, um, like you said, with civic divestment, what's happening to this country economically and otherwise, um, it's, you know, it's vast and I don't know what else to do, but to, to sort of dig in, you sort of have to stake out your territory and, you know, react as well as you can to changing circumstances. But one thing I, I don't think I have the luxury of as a parent, but I don't think really anybody has the luxury of if you want to, you know, stay afloat is you can't just curl up and freak out, you know, what, no. No. you don't have that as an option. So I think you have to try to find ways to be productive within the chaos and to do whatever it takes like getting up at five thirty and exercising, I can relate to that. It's terrible. It's no, terrible. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I got. I, mean, I don't know what I would do without it. I'd be insane. That's the thing. You would be insane, right? So it, the desperation of parenthood makes you better. That's right. What, I mean, <laughs> or it can. It's just. It, it's called the redu- the reduction of options. The dramatic reduction of options. Um, well, listen. I've I've so enjoyed talking with you. Congratulations on the publication of this book and on sticking it out. And uh, I also should, you know, I I do want to make note of this for our listeners that Kristen is the first author I've ever spoken with on this program who during the interview sat inside of a sauna. So I think (laughs) I have to commend the, I have to commend you for the acoustics of your sauna. It's been, I think, I think we're getting good audio. (laughs) I've done a lot of thinking out here. Yeah. It's a good thing to have. You got a sauna in your backyard. Is that what it is? Yeah, um, after the PI closed in 2009, I uh, moved out to Nia Bay for a couple of months and spent a lot of time with my friend uh, who ran a sweat in his backyard. And so when I came back uh, from that, uh, even though, you know, we were in a resource scarce uh, environment because I had lost my job at the the newspaper, uh, we resolved that this would be the first thing that we would do um, is build one of these. And so here we are. Well, and, and it's not on. You're, you're, it's like room temperature. You're not sweating it out as we talk, are you? No, I, I thought about it, uh, but the crackling <laughs> would have been interruptive. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's a wood fire. It's not like a, it's not like a you know, hit a light switch kind of sauna. You have to build a fire. Well, I mean, I just feel like having to talk to me as an endurance test on its own to actually <laughs> ratchet, the, ratchet the temperature up to like 120. <laughs> it's, it's asking a lot. Um. I do hope we get to meet in person. I, I, I am planning on coming back to Skylight uh, in uh, July 24th, but we'll see. Um, and if that does happen, I know you're busy, uh, but I'll, I'll let you know if I'm coming through town. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure, Kristen. Congrats again, and best of luck uh, up there in Seattle. Good luck with your book. I can't wait to read it. All right, that's Kristen Miades-Young. Her novel is called Subduction. It is available from Red Hen Press. You can find Kristen online at KristenMYoung.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Kristen Miades. The novel, again, is called Subduction. Out there now from Red Hen Press. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All 600 and some odd episodes of this show are available for free. It is entirely free. It is a listener-supported show, and your support makes a difference. If you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. If you would like to write to me, if you have some feedback, some thoughts, or uh, you want to tell me a story, the email address is letters at other PPL.com, letters at other PPL.com. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It too is free. It's a free app. Go get the app. It's available where apps are available. If you want to rate and review this podcast, that's a great way to help too. Over at uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Or I guess on Spotify. Just rate the show. Give it a thumbs up. Write a review if you have a moment. Amid this, uh, I guess it's quarantine. Or maybe you're out at a pool party. I don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? Take care of yourself. Like, be careful. Coming up next uh, on the uh, podcast, Brady Hammes. He's got a debut novel out. It's causing some uh, commotion. So stay tuned for that. All right. I'm going to go eat. I'm hungry. I'm vegan. (laughs) 